Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 212. I have your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Great show. Short show, but great show. <laughs> we have two things coming up. We have Main Fiction, which is by none other than Peter F. Hamilton. A short story called Soft Light of Sins. And then we jump into our Morgan Saletta Everything little article there. Morgan sent over that. So there you go. That is show 212. Short and sweet. Give you a little update on Volume 3. Starships of Stories is out now in your local website. <laughs> you have to come over here and get it. It's doing remarkably well. Honestly, thank you everybody that's kind of signed up, you know, and, and went and bought the book via Lulu. I mean, like I say, you've got to come to our site to, to kind of follow the links to get it. But it's tremendous. Thank you so much. What it basically means is, you know, we can keep going, we can keep doing what we're doing because of, you know, your kind, kind generosity. So thank you so much. And the the nice thing is, you know, from from my point of view as well, the, the big hardback book as well, we've nearly sold half of them already. I mean, there's only 25, so we haven't got to sell that many. But it's always, you know, you kind of, you, you've got to kind of buy these books, them ones actually in bulk. So that's lovely. That's, you know, they're going as well. So if, like I say, the nearly up to now half of them sold so if you want one of those you know they will go that's that's no doubt about it 
If anyone didn't catch, we or I interviewed Dee on the sofa notes as well. So we'll go and have a listen to that. Because I just want to ask Dee other questions. That, you know, yes, I kind of stumble onto volume three. But just what else tickles Dee in his life, you know, and what he was like as a young, a young child growing up with science fiction. So do pop over there and have a listen to that. So let's kick off then with, we'll kick off with the main fiction, which is none other than Peter F. Hamilton, Soft Light Sins. Now get this, I didn't realise this, but as of March, I think it's March 2004, his kind of 10th novel, his works had sold over 2 million copies. Do you know what I mean? That's just staggering. I mean, that was like 2004. He is, you know, born in Rutland, England on March the 2nd, 1960. You know, he's now got a number of books out there, you know, starting Mind Star Rising, A Quantum Murder, Nanoflower. Right up until now, the Void Trilogy, The Dreaming Void, The Temporal Void, and Evolution Void. One of the books I've actually got by him is Fallen Dragon, and that is a chunky book. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, you kind of, well, I guess that's the, the Void Trilogy, you know, the amount of words that's went into that. A while ago, we played Peter's other short stories, Death Day as well, and that was got some lovely v- reviews as well, so thank you so much for anybody who wrote in and said thank you for that. It's nice when we can get, you know, like in these big kind of writers and, you know, get a story off them as well. So that's, it's, it's great. It is narrated by Neil Corbett, who is a technical artist at the game developer Rockstar Leeds, currently working on their recently announced Grand Theft Auto 5. My son did a flip when he, when I knew we were going to involve with someone who worked on Grand Theft Auto. His hobbies include making things, moustache growing and karaoke. And yes, go and check out Neil's pictures of Neil. I'll put a link onto his site. Check out Neil. He does sport some rather fine moustaches. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Soft Light Sins by Peter F. Hamilton Ghosts drifted through Douglas McEwen's mind as he drove down the long road towards the execution. There were four spectres, the family of Adrian Reynolds, his mother, his abominable father, and his two lovely young sisters... The forensic team's in-situ video had shown them in their beds, captured in a frozen pose that feigned sleep, eyes closed, lips relaxed, fingers splayed like albino starfish. In each case, their throats had been split open, black yawning gashes that had sprayed thick jets of blood across the sheets. The phosphine mirage was broken when Douglas's police escort switched on their lights and sirens. The five-car convoy was motoring along a thin ribbon of road that cut through the heavily wooded Ling Common to the north of King's Lynn. Tall pines and slim silver birch trees stood sentinel duty on either side, their small yellowed leaves swirling through the air like a rusty snowstorm, settling on the grass verges where they formed a soggy mantle. Twin lines of parked press vehicles were backed up a hundred metres from the entrance of the Clinical Rehabilitation Institute. A dense knot of people was blocking the road ahead. The media circus. And to Douglas's eyes, they did look like clowns dressed in their bulky, garishly coloured parkas, noses and cheeks raw from the chill morning air. A double rank of police in the blue-grey riot tunics had linked arms, creating a barrier to hold them back from the road. A hundred shouted questions merged into a single unintelligible ball as Douglas drove past. Cameras zoomed in. Protesters had taken up the prime sites on either side of the Institute's gate, their stamping feet pounding the mown grass strips into rucked quagmires. The police were three deep here, forming a funnel down to the gate, 
both lines visibly wavering from the pressure of the protesters' bodies. On Douglas's right was the Life Group, opposing any form of capital punishment. From what he could see, the majority of them were women. They held hundreds of white candles aloft, ranging from small nightlights to elaborately carved half-metre columns of wax. A ragged chorus of defiant voices sang Abide With Me. Gobs of mud pelted the car. Douglas switched his wipers on, smearing the windscreen with brown streaks. It was the true justice group on the other side launching the deluge. Trim young men in the main, hair cut close to the skull, wearing olive-green military-style sweaters, a red crucifix stitched onto the breast, and so much hatred leaking from their hard young faces. They were carrying a forest of placards, obscene demands for Adrian Reynolds to be hung, fried, shot, gassed, guillotined, poisoned. The gallows erected near the institute fence had a straw-stuffed effigy of Adrian dangling in the noose. As soon as Douglas's car swept through the gates, someone put a torch to the wooden structure, a well-planned optical bite for the cameras. Then he was through, the gate closing behind him. Something about the savagery of the protesters bolstered his own determination. And what an irony that is. Me, the man who prides himself on his liberalism, having to find refuge in the stiff upper lip tradition the minute adversity strikes. The Institute building was only three years old, paid for by the European Federal Criminal Psychology Bureau. A four-story cube with green-tinted mirror glass that bounced the forest trees back at him, their bare autumn-ravaged trunks long and wavery. It was part secure hospital, part research facility. The Bureau had originally hoped that the doctors could use laser-imprinted subliminal commands to insert new behaviour patterns into the more stubborn social recidivists, a technique that would produce, if not model citizens, at least reasonably honest ones. That research was still continuing, but for the last year the Institute had concentrated on developing soft light. It had been the idea of Dr Michael Elliott, a neurologist who had been studying memory retention, to see how long the rectification commands would last. What his research uncovered was the amnesia mechanism, the method by which grey cells discard the unwanted memories of each day's events, preventing the brain from being cluttered up with a billion irrelevant details. Elias isolated the governing neurological code and managed to adapt the laser imprint technique to transmit the sequence throughout the brain. Soft light. The total erasure of memory and behaviour patterns. Personality death. Anyone committing a capital crime could be mentally executed leaving behind a perfectly viable body, an adult infant ready to be named, educated and returned to the world as a fully functional member of society. Capital punishment without death. For the PC politicians of the Brussels Federal Assembly, it was a dream solution. Adrian Reynolds was about to become the first subject. Barbara Johnson was standing in the Institute's reception area, her long face taut with agitation. Douglas had met her on several occasions, she was Dr. Elliot's deputy. She led him to an interview room on the third floor where Adrian Reynolds was waiting. A couple of muscular-looking male orderlies stood patiently outside. Ten minutes, Douglas, please, she said, apparently embarrassed at rushing him. No more than fifteen. The judge is already here. Sure, he said, and walked into the interview room. Most court defence officers tended to develop a sense of responsibility for their clients, but Douglas had taken it to an extreme always refusing prosecution cases. The price he paid for his quirk came in the form of people like Adrian Reynolds. Twenty years old, with a father who had abused him from the age of eight, sexually, physically and mentally, abused him right up until the day that he finally snapped, taking a kitchen knife upstairs while the family slept, 
The Reynolds trial hadn't dealt with guilt. That was beyond question. Instead, Douglas had fought to establish the level of culpability, arguing that a degree of blame must lie with the social services to let it go on undetected for so long, with the teachers for not spotting the boy's moodiness, with knowing relatives who had turned a blind eye. Douglas fully expected to lose the case. The people of Europe were achingly tired of psychopaths and terrorists and ideology warriors and street gangs. The death penalty had been reintroduced six years previously, the Federal Assembly finally bowing to enormous pressure from the electorate. The jury found Adrian guilty on three charges of murder. He should have been given a painless lethal injection, but with providential coincidence, Dr. Elliot announced Softlight was ready, and Douglas had asked Judge Hayward to consider Adrian as an appropriate subject for the treatment. Judge Hayward agreed. Adrian Reynolds was standing by the window wall, a tall, skinny young man with a weak chin, puffy cheeks, his dark, mousy hair lying lank over his ears. One of the Institute's baggy green overalls hung loosely from his body. He turned when Douglas came in and dropped his eyes. They want me dead, don't they? Douglas realised that the gate and the mob were just visible from the room. They don't know what they want. It was true enough. True justice, thought Softlight, was a liberal scientific cop-out, allowing criminals to escape punishment once again. Life denounced it as a living death, court-sanctioned zombieism. The only thing they had in common was their opposition to it. Is my will sorted out? Adrian asked. Yes, half to Bernardo's, half to the RSPCC. There's not very much. Every little helps. Douglas was having trouble keeping his voice level. If people could see him like this, see that he cares, he doesn't deserve soft light. Maybe I should be on the other side of the gate joining the chanting. If only it wasn't so utterly futile. They asked me if I wanted a priest. Last rites and all that crap. I said no. I said if there was a god, then he wouldn't have made my father. Douglas half smiled. You said that to the institute chaplain? Adrian gave me a fast, wild grin. Nah. The humour faded. Shall we go now? I don't think there's much point in dragging it out any longer. Officially, it was Laboratory Complex 7, but Douglas knew the Institute staff had taken to calling it the Light Chamber, and the press had somehow got hold of that title. It resembled a dental surgery, with a bulky hydraulic chair in the middle of the floor, a glass-topped desk, several cabinets of electronic equipment, and two voice-activated computer terminals. The soft light imprinter was a triple-segment metal arm standing next to the chair. It ended in a bulbous plastic strip moulded to fit over the eyes like an optician's mask. Judge Teresa Hayward was sitting behind the desk when Douglas walked in. She was sixty years old, her oval sun-brown face heavily wrinkled, exacerbated by her frown. During the trial, Douglas had found her to have an astute mind. In court, she was scrupulously impartial and very aware of the political undertones of the case. Harvey Bowden, the court prosecution officer, was studying a plasma screen on one of the computer terminals. He greeted Douglas with a thin nod. The third person in the laboratory was Dr. Michael Elliott. He shared Barbara Johnson's air of the sheepish eagerness, desperately trying to camouflage his feelings below a crust of professional detachment. Adrian walked straight over to the chair, not looking round. The orderlies who were escorting him slipped the restraint straps around his wrists and legs. The knot of tension in Douglas's stomach twisted sharply when Dr. Elliot swung the soft light imprinter up, manoeuvring the black mask over Adrian's eyes. "'Will I see anything?' Adrian asked suddenly. 
The laser operates predominantly in the green section of the spectrum, Dr. Elliot explained. It will be quite bright, but not painfully so. Nor lasting damage, eh? There was a quaver in Adrian's voice. Dr. Elliot managed a sickly smile. Barbara Johnson was voice-lining over one of the terminals, reeling off a string of security codes to access the data core which stored the soft light sequence. Dr. Elliot joined her and added his authorization code. Then he glanced at Judge Hayward. Her face showed nothing but regret. She jerked her head down. Douglas closed his eyes, secretly terrified that a flash of green light would spill out from around the black strip, boring its way down his own optical nerves, exploding in his brain. Somewhere in the distance he heard Dr. Elliot voice line, Expedite! The imprinter arm retracted automatically. Adrian's face wore the look of docile imbecility. Eyes unfocused, every muscle relaxed. Barbara Johnson walked forward carrying a white plastic sensor crown, which she settled around Adrian's head. No brainwave activity above the autonomic level, she reported. Oh, so careful not to display any satisfaction. Douglas watched a bead of saliva leak from the corner of Adrian's mouth and turned away. It worked. Punishment and redemption wrapped in one neat package. Taking away the threat and salvaging our conscience. I ought to be grateful. If only Adrian didn't look so pitiful, so wasted. But at least I cannot be faulted for that. I did my best for him. Absham! The vehement shout electrified Douglas. He jerked around to see Barbara Johnson stumbling back from Adrian in panic. Adrian stared at them with a covetous bird-like expression, his nostrils flaring as he sucked down deep breaths. He shouted at them again, the words making no sense as he snarled and spat. Douglas heard Harvey Bowden saying, That's German! What's happening? Judge Hayward demanded. Dr. Elliot shook his head, staring at Adrian in numbed consternation. It didn't work! It did work, Barbara Johnson insisted. The brainwave function was zero! Does this sound like he's empty-headed? Douglas waved his hand angrily at Adrian. She appealed to Dr. Elliot. Some kind of residual activity? I don't know, he said in a shaken tone. What's Adrian saying? Judge Hayward asked. I've no idea. I, I don't speak German, Douglas said. My God, neither does Adrian. Judge Hayward gave him a sharp look, then turned to Dr. Elliot. Find someone who does, and fast. Not necessary, Barbara Johnson told her. She took some headsets from the desk and handed them round. Douglas slipped his on as she voice-lined the computer terminal for a translation program. The earplugs muted another of Adrian's invectives, then the translator cut in. Bastard Yankees, no better than fucking Jews. Queers and women and nothing more. We'll shit on you yet. Your President Roosevelt is dead from shame from the box. Douglas voice-lined the headset to standby mode, an unnerving chill blossoming inside his head. All right, Judge Hayward said. I want best guesses, and I want them now. It's quite obvious that soft light doesn't work, Harvey Bowden said. It doesn't wipe memories, it simply jumbles them up. There was no primary brainwave activity for two minutes, Barbara Johnson said stubbornly. Harvey Bowden shrugged. People recover from comas, weeks and months spent like a vegetable, and then they're up and talking as if nothing had happened. Douglas knew what Bowden was doing. The prosecution officer wanted Adrian dead, for real. It's obviously not just my skull that those two girls are haunting. 
I can't even pretend to understand what happened, Douglas said as Barbara Johnson and Dr. Elliot started whispering together. And you're certainly not in a position to give qualified neurological opinions, Harvey. We'll need a complete assessment made before any decisions are taken, and we certainly shouldn't decide anything in haste. Dr. Elliot nodded in agreement with something Barbara Johnson said and faced the judge. I believe we should consider regression as a logical explanation for this situation. Regression, Douglas said in confusion. Harvey Bowden gave him a contemptuous look. Past lives, Douglas. People thinking they used to be Napoleon or George Washington, that kind of thing. There have been documented cases, Dr. Elliot said. Under hypnosis, subjects have related a wealth of details concerning their previous existence, details they couldn't have possibly known without extensive research. Rubbish, Harvey Bowden said. Douglas was inclined to agree, but that would be offering Adrian up to true justice. Are you saying this German personality popped up out of nowhere to fill Adrian's empty brain, he asked Dr. Elliot. Yes, a, a German from the Second World War, judging by the reference to Roosevelt. Adrian had fallen silent, glaring round at them, teeth bared. Judge Hayward voice-lined the terminal for a two-way translation. What is your name? she asked Adrian. The terminal repeated the question in German. Bitch. He shouted. She backed away, badly disturbed. Whoever Adrian believes he is, he remains our problem. The three of us, her red fingernail lined up first on Douglas, then Harvey Bowden, have to decide what to do next. Is this an official session? Douglas asked. We'll call it an in-chambers consultation, if you and the prosecution have no objection. After this failure of soft light, prosecution has no alternative but to apply for the death penalty, Harvey Bowden said quickly. On who? Douglas snapped back. On Adrian Reynolds or this German? There is no German, Douglas. Only a mind screwed about by a subliminal laser code. Face facts. You don't know that. At the very least, I would appeal for an identity check first. Oh yes, Harvey Bowden was scathing. What kind of check? Genetic fingerprinting? My client, Adrian Reynolds, was sentenced to personality erasure. That has been enacted, successfully as far as we can tell. The emergence of the second personality is outside the court's jurisdiction. They glared at each other. We could try a hypnogenic, Barbara Johnson suggested. Fair enough, Judge Hayward said. Any objections? No? Good. Adrian spat on Dr. Elliot as he approached with the spray ampoule. Phlegm dripped from the doctor's collar as he applied the nozzle to Adrian's neck. Dr. Elliot waited until the young man dropped into a waking trance, eyelids heavy, head drooping. Can you hear me? he asked. Adrian mumbled something. Yes, the translator program said. What is your name? Eric Breuer. What is your job, Eric? I am a member of the garrison troop. Where? Dachau. Douglas heard a quick hiss of indrawn breath from Barbara Johnson. Harvey Bowden's face turned blank, unreadable. What is the last thing you remember before you woke up in this room? The man's hand started to tremble slightly. The Yankees have arrived. Their tanks halting by the guard post. There were shots. Our officers were killed. The Yankees, they cried and they vomited when they saw the inmates, the unburied corpses. I am lined up inside a wall with my colleagues. Some are bleeding from the beatings. I hear the machine gun firing. Louder! Louder! His eyes widened with shock, mouth hanging open. Douglas turned away, unable to look at the shell of flesh which had once been Adrian Reynolds. 
That's enough, Judge Haywood said as Dr. Elliot began another question. Douglas walked over to the chair and studied the now quiescent figure. If Elliot is right about regression, if you are who you now seem to be, then that would prove the existence of men's souls. That would be so hard for me to really believe in. It would mean there was a God, that Jesus was born and died for us, a long agonizing death nailed to a cross of wood, and how could we ever be forgiven for that? Better we believe in some shared consciousness theory. That would be the scientist's answer. The other is too much to hear. An afterlife. That you have been sent back from heaven, or hell. That life on earth is nothing more than a penitence to serve before we can enter God's kingdom for all time. Now what? Harvey Bowden asked. Douglas left Eric Breuer, wearied by the prosecution officer's unceasing assault. I maintain the case is closed. We have now proved beyond reasonable doubt that this is no longer Adrian Reynolds. The Institute should help Eric Breuer adapt to modern life and let him go. I can't agree with that, Judge Hayward said. Douglas, you haven't thought this through. Suppose this really is Eric Breuer. She held up a hand to forestall Harvey Bowden's protest. The body contains Eric Breuer's memories. Camp guarded Dachau. Then what? Oh. Douglas saw what she was driving at his mind racing after the implications. War crimes. Exactly. If you bring in an appeal over the question of this body's identity, and prove your case that this is Eric Breuer, then he will have to face up to the consequences of his actions in World War II. Do you want that to happen, Douglas? Do you want the public spectacle of a trial? Because that's what you'll get. The Israelis were chasing the original concentration camp guards up until the middle of the 90s, old men whose identities were extremely uncertain. Eric Breuer, who by his own admission was part of the Holocaust, would never be allowed to walk out of the Institute a free man. That's what your appeal would bring. Oh God, she's telling me it's my decision. Me. Forced into the role of judge and probably executioner by default. I don't know, he said miserably. Let me see if I can clarify the situation, Judge Hayward said. I sentenced all the memories to be wiped from Adrian Reynolds' brain. Now we find a deeper, hidden set of memories. She narrowed her eyes and fixed Dr. Elliot with a lance-like stare. Can these Eric Breuer memories be wiped by soft light? He looked startled. Well, yes, I, I would suppose so. But I don't think it's advisable. Why not? We don't understand how they originated. It opens up an entire new area of neurology to study. It's quite possible that each of us possesses a similar mental heritage, a window into the past. Think of the data that were going to be uncovered, the true history we could learn. This was when Douglas witnessed the showing of the drudger's claws for the first time. Dr. Elliot, she said coolly, Adrian Reynolds is not an experimental subject. He is a multiple murderer sentenced to personality erasure, a sentence which this institute is legally obliged to enact. You will either fulfil this function or tell me you are unable to. Do I make myself clear? Dr. Elliot considered his options and settled for a reluctant submission. Very well, I accept that a penal institution is not the place for an academic study of this nature. Judge Haywood glanced at Douglas, then Harvey Bowden. Any objections to a further soft-light administration? No, Douglas said, partly ashamed. It was the easy way out, the one I always take. This time he left his eyes open for the whole procedure. Eric Breuer stared placidly ahead as the soft light and printer's moulded strip went over his eyes.
That's it, Dr. Elliot announced. The arm retracted, folding back onto his pedestal. Barbara Johnson moved in with the white plastic sensor crown again. She settled it on the head. No primary brainwave activity registering, she reported. We'll wait for a little longer, Judge Hayward said. See if there's any change. It's happening, Barbara Johnson called. She was hovering around the computer terminal which was displaying the sensor crown readings. His brainwave activity is picking up. When Douglas checked his watch, he saw that barely four minutes had elapsed. Adrian's head had been bowed limply ever since the arm had retracted. Now Douglas watched him lift his chin, his expression perfectly calm. Then he began to hunch in on himself, bending his shoulders around as far as the straps allowed. Why doesn't he say anything, Douglas whispered to Barbara Johnson. Because we haven't told him to, she whispered back. The hypnogenic lasts about three hours, and he's still well under. Can you hear me? Judge Hayward asked. What's your name? He blinked slowly. I hear you, miss. Please, they call me Deaf Willie, miss. It was an American accent, a slow, rich twang, setting off an unwelcome train of thought in Douglas's mind. It was the servile manner which he couldn't ignore. Why Deaf Willie? Barbara Johnson asked impulsively. "'Cause I ran when the sheriff shouted me to stop, miss. I didn't hear him, I swear. Boxed my ears when he caught me. Said I must have been born deaf. Are you black? Douglas asked. He ignored the looks the others gave him. Dead Willie's mouth split into a wide grin. Yes, sir, I surely am. How old are you, Deaf Willie? Sir, maybe sixteen, seventeen, don't really know for sure. Do you know what year it is? Yes, yeah, sir. No, sir, I, I don't know that, sir. Who is the president? Harvey Bowden asked. Why, it's Mr. Harrison, sir. Mr. Benjamin Harrison. Barbara Johnson started to voice line the terminal, calling up a list of American presidents. Where do you live? Judge Hayward asked. Mississippi State, miss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Benjamin Harrison served one term, Barbara Johnson said, 1889 to 93. What is the last thing you remember before you woke up here? Dr. Elliot asked. Sir, it's the horses, sir. These riding all around the house, sir. Must be 20 or 30 of them. These got torches, raising everything as they go. Flames is rising halfway up to heaven. Beads of sweat began to prick his forehead, 
Little Josie, she's inside. I, I can hear her. Lord, I can't see her. Oh, Jesus almighty, I'm on fire. Josie's still screaming. I'll go get her mama. I will. Thick cords of muscle rose on his throat. He began to gurgle, a thick liquid sound as if he was choking. Dr. Elliot rushed forward. Forget. Forget that. Go back. Right back. When you were a little boy, think of that. When you were little. What do you remember when you were little? Judge Haywood pumped her cheeks out as Dr. Elliot soothed deaf Willie back with calming words, encouraging murmurs. At least we haven't got a zealot this time, she said. No, Harvey Bowden said carefully. But you did rule that soft light should be used until it was successful. Douglas couldn't believe what the prosecution officer had said. Are you telling me you want this deaf Willie personality wiped? Prosecution does have a valid point, Judge Haywood said. She looked unhappy at what she was having to say. If I order a halt now, then that judgment will have to be reviewed by an appeal court, and it wouldn't hold up. It's abysmally arbitrary. We didn't like Eric Breuer, so he was wiped, but we felt sorry for a downtrodden cotton-picker boy, so he was allowed to stay. What kind of legal basis is that? No, Douglas. We committed ourselves when we wiped Eric Breuer. Either this body is wiped clean of all its memories, or it is physically executed. But we have neither the moral nor legal authority to order the death of an innocent like Death Willie, Douglas insisted. And that's what we're discussing here. Softlight is a death penalty for Deaf Willie. He's nothing like Eric Breuer. He doesn't deserve to be erased. I contend that what we've found in this instance is an eminently suitable replacement personality for Adrian Reynolds's body, as you originally ruled, Judge. Not quite, Barbara Johnson said. Examine that idea from a practical standpoint, Douglas. You'll have one hell of a problem trying to integrate an illiterate 19th century black boy into modern European society, not to mention acclimatising him to a white body. Without such conditioning, he would be totally adrift in time. No family to love him, nothing he can understand, let alone to relate to. In order to survive, his antique behaviour patterns would all have to be suppressed. The memories too, I imagine. Could you stay sane with the memory of your own death in your mind? In fact, you would probably wind up having to junk about 90% of his memories. Only the name would be left. You wouldn't be saving him at all. She appeared saddened by the prospect. Our era would be as cruel to deaf Willie as his own. Douglas thought about it and couldn't see a way out. Very well, he said. I have no objection to clearing Adrian's brain entirely. You want me to wipe every past life, Dr. Elliot asked in astonishment. But that will probably mean we're going back to pre-sentience, Neanderthal man. That's the Paleolithic age. And from what we've seen so far, there are about two or three lives per century. If that holds constant, you're talking about 400 plus incarnations. That'll take a week. Did you have anything else planned? Judge Haywood asked icily. The third personality was called Rosen, another slave from Mississippi. He died from a whipping whilst James Monroe was president. He was still uttering little dog-like whines when Dr. Elliot loathed the soft light imprinter over his eyes. Number four was French, a peasant killed at the start of the revolution. They had some trouble coaxing number five to speak. There was no response to any European language. Barbara Johnson solved it by accessing Cambridge University's linguistic department computer and requesting a list of greetings in all the languages known to be in use around 1700. If we have to do this each time, the whole process is going to take a month, Dr. Elliot said as the terminal droned through the catalogue, and I doubt that the university's memory calls will be able to help us when we enter pre-Roman history. The man sitting in the chair mumbled something in response to the terminal. African, Barbara Johnson said triumphantly. His name was Ngombi, a member of the Fon tribe. They were migrants based in Abomi, prey to the coastal slavers. He remembered the Ardra war canoes coming upstream to attack his village, a fight. 
Listening to him and the ones that followed, it seemed to Douglas as though Adrian had turned the tables on them, condemning them to witness a seemingly endless litany of misery, a refined torment for the empathic. They had lunch delivered to the laboratory, compartmentalised airline-style trays from the canteen. Douglas just ate the cheese and biscuits, staring out through the window. The mist which swirled through the woodland outside was thickening. It had already obscured the yellow-brown carpet of dead bracken. Incarnations 10 to 20 were mainly European. Portuguese, English, Dutch, German. Two of them awoke screaming and pleading in Spanish, their anguish so deep-set it was beyond even the hypnogenic's ability to quell. Harvey Bowden grimaced while Dr. Elliot hurriedly manoeuvred the soft light and printer over the first. Spanish Inquisition, he said softly. The time fits. And life thinks soft lights medieval, Barbara Johnson said grimly. Douglas abandoned his cheese and biscuits. He walked over to the window wall, only half listening to a man called John Dyker give an account of Cambridge in the 1340s, his job as a Freemason, how he lost his mother, wife and five children to the Black Death before succumbing himself. The autumn frost seemed to reach in through the thick glass to frost Douglas's body to the core. Why are there no memories of what happens between his lives? God's censorship? Or is it simply that the afterlife cannot be interpreted through human senses? The brain cannot hold it? Maybe Dr. Elliot will choose that as his next area of study. If he does, I'd like him to fail utterly. Even before this, we regarded life too cheaply. Now soft life will reduce its value still further. In that respect, it has already been a tragic failure. Perhaps that is our punishment for meddling with the substance of our own souls. But what kind of God would that give us? One who shows little compassion, one who will hold us to account for each of our actions on this earth, one who is prepared to turn us away from the gates of the holy city. An Old Testament God. He cannot be like that. He cannot. The evening wore on without respite. One tale of woe following another as the incarnations came and went. When Douglas stood beside the window wall, he could see the tiny yellow flames of the candles the life women were using for their vigil, a small dim galaxy lost at the end of time. Their flames hold an unknowing poignancy. If they had lit one for every mortal death Adrian's soul had undergone, they would have the number about right. Douglas strode over to the chair as Dr. Elliot was lowering the soft light imprinter over Decius Tactus, a Roman centurion and Christian condemned to death by a local magistrate. His family had been butchered by soldiers, blaming the bad harvest on their alien god. The man's eyes gazed back at him as though through a hazy chemical veil. "'What did he do?' Douglas whispered hoarsely. He met the blank faces of the others. "'Christians were blamed for everything,' Barbara Johnson said. "'It was convenient. No, not Tactus. Originally. What sin could possibly be so bad, so brutal to deserve this?' "'What do you mean originally, Douglas?' Judge Hayward asked. There was a degree of petulance in the question. It was midnight. They had been in the laboratory for a straight fourteen hours. This man's soul has been sent back from the afterlife forty times in two thousand years, and each time he has suffered the most appalling degradations, known nothing but war, pestilence and slavery, seen his families murdered, his homes razed, whole cultures wiped out, torment without end. This is hell for him, not Dante's Inferno, hell on earth, every single time. Why? What did he do that God would subject him to this? He saw Judge Hayward and Harvey Bowden exchange a heavy glance. Look, Douglas, Harvey Bowden began. Don't, he said angrily. 
Don't you tell me it's been a long day. Don't you tell me I need to go home and get some sleep. Probability, said Dr. Elliot. That's all it is, Douglas. So far we've seen less than 10% of his incarnations. Apart from the last couple of centuries, the vast majority of the human race has lived short, miserable lives in unhygienic squalor. In any given historical era, the number of aristocrats is a minute fraction. It always has been. No, he did something. Something terrible, Douglas could sense the conviction growing inside him. It was one of the most frightening experiences he had ever known. A precognition that could look into the past. Genghis Khan, Barbara Johnson suggested. He was late 10th century, Judge Hayward said thoughtfully. We've regressed well past that now. We'll have another half hour before this hypnogenic wears off, Dr. Elliot said. Do you want me to go on? Yes, Judge Hayward said before Douglas could voice a protest. Should I object? I want to know who he was, what he did, and I don't want to know. That is the way my life goes, always unable to decide. Well, it ends now, taken out of my hands. I could have stopped it right at the start. I should have said no, stood firm, but I did what appeared to be best at the time. I cannot be blamed for that. It is not I who has stained my guilt. They waited in restless silence while the 41st incarnation flooded into the body of Adrian Reynolds. His eyes narrowed, the irises beginning to blacken, receding to some indefinable depth. For one supremely disconcerting moment, Douglas thought he was looking directly into a distance beyond that of galactic night. I know that man, that look. He holds a terror from which even insanity is no refuge. I've seen it once before, so long ago. But where? Douglas heard the terminal start with a Hebrew greeting. The man answered straight away. What is your name? Dr. Elliot said. The man blinked his lips quivering as he fought against the words the hypnogenic was tearing from his mind. I am named Judas Iscariot. His wounded gaze swept round the five of them in a voiceless plea. Then he saw Douglas, and a confounded light of recognition flared. Pilot, he cried. Pontius Pilot. Douglas stared back at him in mute horror, while time quietly dissolved inside his brain. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Peter F. Hamilton. Don't go pinch you that one. <laughs> Big thank you to Neil. Neil, thank you so much. So we have our very own Morgan Sletter. Morgan, with your Everything Squire. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. This is Morgan Sletter. My last installment was a bit of a travelogue as I visited my hometown of San Francisco and then jetted off to Chicago and Notre Dame University for a conference. While there, I visited the Adler Planetarium and had the pleasure of meeting Larry Santoro and his wife, Tysilia. I also had the opportunity of seeing a real-life spaceship, the Gemini capsule. In fact, my original idea for this month's installment was to talk about science fiction and ecology, but I'll save that for another episode, because what with the final flight of the space shuttle and the end of an era and the beginning it seems, of the era of private spaceflight, I thought I'd dedicate this episode to the space shuttle and the men and women, alive and dead, who built and flew this most marvelous of machines. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Spacecraft in Science and Science Fiction. Science fiction aficionado or not, none of us have any difficulty in conjuring up a vision of a spacecraft 
from flying saucers, popular ever since Kenneth Arnold's 1947 sighting, to the perennial favorite, the Millennium Falcon. Members of my parents' generation all remember the Apollo missions and would at least recognize the sexy lines of the Soviet rockets like the Vostok 1, which took the first human to space, Yuri Gagarin. At the same time, they may have dreamed of interplanetary travel aboard the Discovery, featured in 2001, or interstellar discovery aboard the NCC-1701, the USS Enterprise. While my generation may have grown up with reruns of Star Trek and The Next Generation, we were, more than anything else, awed by Star Wars, its spacecraft and state-of-the-art special effects which dazzled us as young children. Star Wars is the first movie I remember seeing in a movie theater on a family outing to the Old Mill Shopping Center with my Grandpa Rex and Grandma Rita. I can still remember hiding my face in my hands when Darth Vader came aboard Princess Leia's consular ship and choked the rebel soldier. And of course, we were awed by the launch of the first space shuttle in 1981, and we can, most of us, remember where we were when the Challenger blew up. I'm not going to give you an exhaustive history of spacecraft real or imagined today, but what I will do is give you some highlights, historical and contemporary, real and imagined, but with a special focus on the artists, whether illustrators, painters, or filmmakers, who have shaped our vision of what spacecraft and space exploration are and will be. Today's installment, This is a Big Subject, will be the first of two parts, and I'll end roughly at the beginning of the space age and continue next time, next month, with the absolute plethora of spaceships real and imagined we have seen in the last 40 years of science and science fiction. Dreams of flying are as old, perhaps, as humanity itself. Indeed, who has not looked at the graceful flight of a bird and not dreamed of having wings himself? Whenever our hominid ancestors awoke from the long dream of the everlasting now with fully-fledged self-awareness, surely they did the same. Our mythology, distant echoes, perhaps, of these dreams, are full of tales of flying chariots, flying carpets, and other mysterious objects like Ezekiel's wheels within wheels. But the pseudo-scientific ramblings of the ancient astronaut and chariot of the goddess aside, none of these are descriptions of anything resembling a spacecraft such as we would actually picture one today. And don't be fooled by intellectually vapid documentaries like the History Channel's Ancient Astronauts, which I watched recently. All that talk about the Indian Vimanas being spaceships is pure hokum from a text supposedly revealed by mental channeling to an early 20th century mystic and discovered in 1952 by G. R. Josier. The Vimanas of the ancient Vedas are standard mythological fare, generally flying chariots pulled by animals and another resembling a cloud. Perhaps the earliest account of a spaceflight as such is a description of a voyage to the moon by a Syrian Greek of the name Lucian the Scoffer, or Lucianus of Samosata. In their book, Spacecraft in Fact and Fiction, Harry Harrison and Malcolm Edwards suggest that Lucian, whose hero flapped to the moon with an eagle wing on one arm and a vulture on the other, may be the spiritual father of science fiction flight. Certainly his assumption that the Earth's atmosphere extended to the lunar realm is one that was continued throughout the ages. Most early spacecraft were seen as aircraft of some sort or another, from balloons to chairs harnessed to birds. Lucian's second work of what Harrison and Edwards term primitive science fiction features an altogether more grandiose mode of propulsion. An entire ship is propelled to lunar adventure atop a waterspout of planetary proportions. I've previously mentioned Kepler's speculative work Somnium, 
which describes a dream voyage to the moon published in sixteen thirty four shortly thereafter the protestant bishop john wilkins published a non-fiction work called a discourse concerning a new world in which he discusses the manner by which we might engage in travel to other worlds these being one by spirits or angels two by the help of fowls three by wings fixed immediately to the body and four by a flying chariot once again the bishop imagined that such a voyage would be accomplished through the air this idea that space was filled with air was a well-established idea in the west and followed aristotle's principle that nature abhors a vacuum and the idea that space above the terrestrial sphere was filled with the fifth element ether an idea aristotle took from his teacher plato in the east in china however some philosophers such as zhang hang suggested in the second century a d that space was both infinite and empty both ideas which in the west were developed during the scientific revolution and are now part of the general public's world view so because early spacecraft were conceived of as aircraft there was no attempt to give them any means of protecting their passengers from the cold vacuum of space and curiously though fireworks have been around since the second century b c in china and were introduced to the west by the mongols and arabs in the early middle ages it was not until sixteen forty nine that rockets were suggested as a means of propulsion to the moon in cyrano de bergerac's comedic voyage dans la lune or voyage to the moon and it is not until the mid eighteen hundreds that we find a realistic spaceship design incorporating an air supply in the work of the american academic george tucker who penned a voyage to the moon under the name Joseph Adderley in 1827. Some of the various works of the 19th century which describe spacecraft of varying realism I have discussed in previous episodes, and so I will only briefly mention Percy Gregg's Across the Zodiac, which gave great attention to describing the airtight and insulated spacecraft, powered by the ever-popular anti-gravity, in this case a mysterious electric force known as apergy. It was not until the beginning of the last century that spacecraft became a real possibility and that imaginary spacecraft began resembling the true spacecraft that we have today. There are three men who are generally considered the fathers of spaceflight, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, Robert H. Goddard, and Hermann Orberth. Tsiolkovsky was a self-trained Russian scientist who anticipated much of the true nature of rockets and the space age. Not only did he suggest using multi-stage rockets powered by liquid fuels such as hydrogen and oxygen, but he also foresaw the need to create self-maintaining systems for life support, using, for example, greenhouses, an idea which we still have not perfected, but which will undoubtedly be part of any future space colony. Robert Goddard, an American, was both a theoretical and a practical scientist and launched the world's first liquid-fueled rocket, which was a true predecessor of today's massive lift engines. I spoke of Hermann Orberth in my installment on space colonies. Orberth was a German scientist and visionary who inspired Fritz Lang's enormously popular Frau im Mond, or Girl in the Moon, and he designed a liquid-fueled rocket which was launched in 1930. He later worked for NASA under Vannevar von Braun and was the only one of the three fathers of rocketry to live to see the moon landing. The 1930s was really the birth of the rocket age, and, not coincidentally, the beginning of science fiction's golden age. The pulp magazine Amazing Stories, edited by Hugo Gernsback, exploded on the scene in 1926, 
and influenced a generation of young scientists and science fiction fans alike, though there was scarce science in the science fiction that graced its pulpy pages. What there was, and in abundance, was action and adventure, by the likes of Edward Elmer Smith, Ph.D., known to generations of science fiction readers as Doc Smith. Amazing stories and writers like Doc Smith, while lacking certainly in certain literary aspects, nevertheless succeeded in taking science fiction boldly where no man has gone before, as it were, from the confines of the solar system's backyard, explored in home-built or jerry-rigged rocket ships, to the vast and glittery expanse of the galaxy, thanks to faster-than-light drives, which, at the stroke of a pen, put an X over Einstein's inconvenient equations. After all, why let a little physics get in the way when interstellar wars, conquest, and empire await? What amazing stories also had was brilliant cover art and illustrations. More than anyone else, it was Frank R. Paul who breathed life into the science fiction of the era, illustrating the covers for all of Gernsback's magazines in the 20s and 30s. His massive spacecraft, engaged in battles and other adventure or calamities, influenced generations of science fiction artists. Trained as a technical illustrator, Paul showed the world what the constructs of science fiction should look like, creating vast metropoli and oversized spaceships that looked solid, built, and real. There were many other master illustrators of this era. Hans Veselowski, known as Vesso, and Hubert Rogers are notable among them. If you like retro science fiction art, I highly, highly recommend that you take a jaunt over to David Zondi's Tales of Future Past at davidzondi.com. That's David, S-Z-O-N-D-Y, dot com. David has put together a true treasure trove of fantastic visions of the future. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of art and illustration to both the science and science fiction of spaceflight that was seeded at this time and continues to bear fruit today. I've spoken in my recent installments, Island in the Void, Space Habitats, about the artwork of Don Davis and Rick Gadis, whose illustrations of Bernal Spears, O'Neill Cylinders, and Stanford Tori captured my youthful imagination in the 70s and 80s. In the 1950s, the last decade of science fiction's golden age, there was one artist whose vision of spacecraft and space exploration captured the public imagination and showed the generation that was to witness the launch of Gagarin, the space race, and the moon landing what space travel would look like. That artist was Chesley Bonestell. In addition to painting highly realistic-looking images of rockets landing on the moon and debarking space-suited astronauts, he designed the sets for the 1950 film Destination Moon, whose screenplay Robert Heinlein helped to write. George Powell, the director, went on to make When Worlds Collide, which Bonestell also worked on, and Bonestell illustrated Conquest of Space, which was written by Willie Ley, von Braun's associate, who, unlike Brown, left Germany when Hitler rose to power. Another font of vivid imagination regarding spaceships and space travel were comic books, such as Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon in the 1930s, both of which gave rise to films and captured the public imagination. In 1950s Britain, Dan Dare, a lean-faced, red-haired pilot, was the space hero of a generation, and his winged spaceship, Anastasia, carried him and his loyal crew throughout the solar system. In fact, Dan Dare has been resurrected many times since the 1950s, most recently by Virgin Comics in 2008. He was such a household name that he has also appeared in songs, such as Elton John's Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future, in 1975, 
as well as in the song Astronomy Domine by Pink Floyd in their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. But I want to end this first half of spacecraft, of science and science fiction, with probably the most famous and ubiquitous spaceship of them all, the Flying Saucer. Although frequently claimed to be represented in religious art or narratives by ufologists, and indeed there is a well-recorded mass sighting of disks and cylinders in the sky in Nuremberg in 1561, the flying saucer phenomenon as we know it today really began in 1947, on June the 24th specifically. Kenneth Arnold, an American businessman and pilot, was flying solo near Mount Rainier in Washington when, in the distance, he spotted a group of shining objects whizzing above the Cascade Mountains. According to Arnold, the objects were like pie pans and were the fastest thing he'd ever seen. It is now felt that the term flying saucer to describe the UFOs he saw, probably invented by an editor, but in any case, by June the 26th, newspapers began speaking of flying saucers and these silvery UFOs entered the popular imagination never to leave, though it is undoubtedly most emblematic of 1950s science fiction, appearing in a host of mid-20th century films such as Plan B from Outer Space and The Day the Earth Stood Still. And so I'll leave you with a memory of Klaatu stepping out of his silver saucer in a shiny metallic spaceship, bearing a message of peace, misinterpreted of course, to the people of the Earth. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute Ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. In my next episode, I'll explore the science and science fiction of the space age and beyond, and I'll give you my top ten spaceships of all time. Until then, I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. What well, a gentleman. Morgan, thank you so much. So that is Starships over 112. I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, do, you know, support the, the sofa in her time of need. Well, it's a time when she can kind of get some support. Volume 3 is doing great. You know, I hope you can kind of check out. You know, we even have PD, all sorts of digital formats as well. So there you go. I will put a link on. But if you come over to say you cannot miss that we're selling our you know annual book. So there you go. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that procedure Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Even 
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.